We are going to uh, begin a study here this evening, and it's going to have a little bit of a ramp. Uh, we're going to get to that in just a moment. But before we do, I, I wanted to ask a question here tonight. How many of you have ever participated in a sports team? How many of you? Raise that hand nice and high. Be loud and proud. Okay, this is good. This is good, okay? See, Pastor Gorley, this is what we do with sports illustrations. We want to make sure that we got a good crowd, good sports group here tonight. So that's great. There's a lot of folks out here that participated in a sports team. So I was sitting there, and how many of you remember this, your first game? Remember that first game? That first time you got out there to play kickball, Okay. You got up to the mound, and they're asking you how you want that ball rolled down, you know, and you said fast or bouncy or whatever, you know. But do you remember the real first game when you were uh, suited up in the jersey, getting ready to warm up on the court? And as you were stepping out on the court, warming up, you know, maybe it's basketball, because that's what I think of. I played basketball growing up, and I remember uh, my first game was in junior high. Okay, so this is reaching back. I'm now 44, so reliving my junior high days. It's like getting back to when I was 12 and 13. Whew, it's getting, uh, getting long there, okay? But I still have this memory, okay? It hasn't fled yet. I'm not like Dr. Adkins at the moment, so I don't even think he's here tonight, so that's, that's terrible. That's terrible I did that. I remember sitting on the bench, and my coach uh, was looking at me. I, I obviously wasn't starting, and I was just sitting there, and I was watching, big eyes looking, trying to see what my teammates were doing so I could be ready to go in, you know. And the coach looks at me and goes, Burdick! I'm like, yes, sir. And he looked, and he goes, are you ready? No, sir. I'm not ready, you know. I, I was not ready to go in. And, you know, he gave me this look like, what? You know, and then he and just waved his hand at me. So I sit there and I, I continue to um, watch the game, you know, so to speak, and, and I'm sitting there, you know, yeah, go, go, go. Then all of a sudden I hear, Burdick, get in there. Oh, I want to tell you, that moment I got up, my knees were shaking. I was so nervous stepping on the court. I, I don't know if you remember the feeling. It feels like your, your feet are like cement blocks. You're sitting there, you're taking a step, and you're getting up there. And, and I'm walking up, and like at half court, we're supposed to be playing defense, you know, and all this stuff. And it's like doing all the wrong things because of my nervousness. And so as I was sitting there, I was thinking back to that. And I was thinking about, you know, I wasn't doing much to help my team by sitting on a bench. Okay, I, I get that you have to have some bench players, but that's just it. They're supposed to be ready to go in. They're supposed to be ones that are going to play the game. You know, I looked up the definition of basketball, and it says this, a game played by two teams of usually five players, each on a rectangular court, having a raised basketball goal at each end, points being scored by tossing the ball through the opponent's basket. Okay, so you're trying to score. You're trying to get your ball into your opponent's basket. And by sitting on the bench, you know, I was really just being a fan. I wasn't participating. You know, I may be on the team, but I wasn't contributing to the goal of our team, and that's winning the game. So that got me to thinking a little bit more about us today as Christians. What is the goal of the church? What is the goal of the church? So what we're going to do is I'm going to have you turn to the passage, 
and it's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can go ahead and start turning there. Uh, This is not going to be our main text for tonight, but I do want you to get your eyes on this text because we're going to build to a point and we're going to get to this point of what the goal of the church is, what that looks like. And we're going to look at Paul and Silas here in just a moment and draw some lessons from one of Paul's missionary journeys. So you are in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to be reading verse 12, and I'm going to read down to verse 27. And as I do so, I just ask you to follow along and read, um, or follow along and, and just as I read. So verse 12, for as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the eye shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased him. If they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable upon these bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now here's the verse I want you to see right here. And this one I would encourage you to underline if you do that in your Bible. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Now the church at Corinth, Paul called them the body of Christ. Campus church is part of the body of Christ. We are the body and that shows our unity. It talks about that, that uh, we are one, that we are part of the body of Christ, and yet we still have this uh, diversity within the body, that we're members in particular or members individually, and each one of us has a, a role, if you will, within the body of Christ. As the body of Christ, the church should demonstrate the love of God clearly, tangibly, and boldly. So here we are as the body of Christ. We're gathered here tonight. And let me just say thank you for coming out. I appreciate so much each one that makes the effort to come out on a Wednesday night. 
I get it. It's the middle of the week. You're thinking, you know, I could just be home. You know, I, I could be watching my live stream. We do appreciate those watching my live stream. But, you know, we could also, we could also, you can come. We've got plenty of service time if you want to try to get here in person. Um, but I appreciate you all coming out. I get it. Every one of us, you know, faces that battle. And so as we're gathered here as the body of Christ, we want to be able to demonstrate the love of God, not just to one another, although that was mentioned here, that there should be no schism in the body, okay? The idea that there's no division, uh, there's no fighting amongst us. I mean, wouldn't that be interesting, you know, I mean, to have all this bickering and fighting going on within the body of Christ when we're supposed to be unified? We're all in Christ. Ought we not act like Christ? You know, like a, a basketball team, we the church, as the body of Christ, we have a goal. And I would probably phrase it a little bit more that we have this multifaceted mission, okay? There's a lot to it. Big picture is to glorify Christ individually. It is each of us doing our part. Now, when you hear that, you're thinking, well, that's kind of vague, isn't it, Josh? I mean, individually, each of us does our part. Now, what is our part in the body of Christ? Is it simply just to show up on a Wednesday night? Well, it's part of it. But I wouldn't say that's all of it. Remember, it's this multifaceted mission that you and I have. That we're called to. We find that when Jesus was ascending to heaven, the disciples are gathered around. He's giving them some final instruction some final words. And he looks at the disciples, those that are there, he says, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you, or ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. He calls them witnesses. Now, if you've ever witnessed a car accident, if you've ever been one of the folks that the police officer comes up and he's looking to get your testimony, to get your report, he'll ask you questions and say, what did you see? Tell me what happened. And he'll write down everything that you saw. Because as a, a witness, uh, you are going to share the event as you saw it. You're going to report what happened. In this moment here, Jesus is looking at these individuals, speaking to them, and he's telling them, I want you to go and tell others what happened. I want you to share the story of your life and how it was changed. I want you to go and tell others about me and what I did for you and what I am willing to do for others. And so it begins here with this idea of being a witness. And as the body of Christ, we are witnesses of the transformation we have experienced. Okay, so I got saved when I was about seven years old. It was September, I think, uh, 1984. Uh, right around there, and I got saved. I received Jesus Christ as my Savior. And what I'm supposed to do after receiving Jesus Christ is be a witness to go and share the gospel, to go and tell others about what has happened to me. 
And we're called to share that truth and love. It's interesting. And, and just, it's just us. It's just us here tonight. But sometimes we get frustrated with this world and the way that the world behaves. Sometimes we will call the world names because of the frustration that we experience. I often wonder sometimes when I get so upset about what's going on in our world today, and I go, man, there are just a bunch of crazies out there. I wonder if Jesus is sitting there and thinking, Josh, I love them. Why would you call them crazy? But Lord, don't you see what they do? Don't you see how they're blaspheming your name? Don't you see that they're, they're just corrupting what you have created? And he's sitting there saying, but I sent you to be what? A witness. I'm supposed to be a witness. And so... The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, and, and he said this and uh, listed all these things about um, you know, all these sinful uh, positions, activities, and then he gets to his point, and he says this about the church at Corinth, and such were some of you, but you're washed, but you're sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You've experienced a transformation. Now, I believe that probably most everybody here tonight has experienced that transformation. You have experienced uh, the grace of God, the love of God. You have received Jesus Christ as your Savior. So my question for us is: we begin this study and we get to our main text, which is going to be Acts 17. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Acts 17, uh, this is where we'll be for the rest of this evening. Acts 17, we're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 12 tonight. So how do we witness about what Christ has done for us? Here's the reality, okay? It, Witnessing, sharing the gospel, telling others about what Jesus did for you. Let's be honest, we'd probably rather give to the offering tonight than go and tell somebody about Jesus. We would probably rather go and be in the nursery than go out and go door to door here in Pensacola. We, instead of going out and witnessing and sharing the gospel, we'd probably opt for something else. But it's interesting to me that so many times in Scripture, I find that you and I, as God's people, are called to share the gospel, the Great Commission. We're supposed to go and tell others, and we're supposed to make disciples. The Apostle Paul said that we're supposed to be ambassadors for Christ. We're supposed to be fishers of men, Jesus said. We're supposed to go out there and share that gospel. So how can we do that? What are some lessons we can observe here from Acts chapter 17 with Paul and Silas? 
So look with me there in verse number one of Acts 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So I want to stop right there. I want to stop right there. I want you to understand the background to this, because it sounds like Paul and Silas, who is the they here, are just traveling. Okay, but there's something far more going on for these two men. Something that they're carrying with them from their last visit or their last um, stop, if you will. Look back with me in Acts 16 and verse 22. And the multitude rose up together against them. Again, this is Paul and Silas. And the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Verse 25, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Later on in verse 37, Paul is confronted uh, with those telling him, all right, we're going to let you go. We're going to let you go, okay? And he sat there and said, they have beaten us openly uncondemned. They didn't give us a fair trial. They didn't give us an opportunity to have any sort of uh, legal presentation. And then he says, being Romans and having cast us into prison, now do they thrust us out privily? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. And of course, at that point, they were afraid. They just beat Romans and they weren't supposed to do that. There was supposed to be due process and it didn't happen. And of course, the magistrates, those leaders there, they, they, they came down and, and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out to say, hey, Paul and Silas, oh yeah, let's go. We're so sorry. Uh, here, just keep going. And then they begin this trip to Thessalonica. Now think with me for a moment. You've just been beaten. And now you're beginning this journey. From Philippi to Thessalonica, it was like 100 miles. They would have traveled over 100 miles. At best, the average person could walk 30 miles a day, maybe three days. But these men here were beaten. They were sore. And here it is. They're continuing to the next place that the Spirit of God was leading. Here's my first lesson I see here. And that's this, be of good courage. Be of good courage. You know, that journey, every step had to hurt. Yet we don't find Paul, we don't find Silas saying, that's it, I'm done, I quit. These two men soldiered on. You know, what beatings would come next? What suffering would we endure in our next journey, the next city? They never thought those things. They continued on. They pressed on. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, verse 16 kind of gives us an idea, a little bit of Paul's mindset. And says this, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me, a burden. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. How is it that you and I can go through this life not sharing what Christ has done for us. By not telling others about him. I get it. It can be fearful. I understand that. It can be hard to get out there and, and, and 
talk to your coworker or, or talk to the waiter or waitress or, or go in and engage this community. Sometimes that is intimidating. Paul and Silas, they weren't going to quit. John Wesley said this, give me a hundred men who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God and I will shake the world. Now, let's just imagine for a moment that you and I, we commit that with the rest of this year that we're going to lead one person to Christ. That's going to be our prayer, okay? One person. Now imagine if, okay, just all things being equal, that one person starts attending this church, okay? Now think if that new group next year goes just one person, we'll each do that. Imagine how fast this church would multiply. Imagine how much this community would change because God's people had good courage. They went out there to go and share the gospel. John Knox was one of the key leaders of the Scottish Reformation, and on his graveside marker, it reads this, Here lies one who neither flattered nor feared any flesh. Now, if you know anything about John Knox, the guy was a quite, quite a rowdy individual, quite aggressive to some degree. He was known as the Thundering Scott. Okay, so you can obviously imagine there was some intensity behind him. But he didn't fear any flesh. He didn't flatter any flesh. He didn't just tickle their ears. You know, Joshua getting ready to embark on a great mission, on a great opportunity to lead the people into the promised land. God said, have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. You know, I want to tell you something. Be of good courage. God is with you. No matter what you face in this life, God is with you. And if you go door to door, if you go out and you go witness to your neighbor, if you get up and go and engage this community with the gospel and simply share what has happened in your life, God will be with you. Be of a good courage. Let's look at the next lesson that we see here. Start the conversation. Start the conversation. Verse 2 of Acts 17. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. You see right there, it says, as his manner was. This was his custom. This was his routine. How many like to have a, a good routine? All right, you get up, your alarm clock goes off, and, and you just have things, maybe your clothes are set out, you know, you have the same breakfast every day, you know, or whatever. You just have that routine. You hear that podcast going, you're just ready to start the day. You like routine. Well, Paul's routine when he came into a new city was to go straight to the synagogue. And then he'd begin, he'd begin to go ahead and share the, the gospel. He'd begin to tell others about Jesus Christ. And the Bible says there that three Sabbath days. So some two to three weeks that he is there, that he is starting to share the gospel. And he says he went in unto them. He engaged them. I think part of our problem today is that we have gotten to the point where we want the people to come to us. 
We want people to come and, hey, Lord, go ahead and send them to me. Uh, help me, Lord, to you know, just meet that individual. Send them to me. And yet I think we need to be the ones starting the conversation. We need to be the ones that are going to them. I love it here that um, you know, we, need, we, need to, um, we need to be thinking about noticing people. Jesus here, I love this part. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 says this, but when he saw the multitudes, this is Jesus, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as a sheep having no shepherd. You know, talking with somebody begins with noticing them. Remember Zacchaeus, the shortest guy in all of the Bible? This man wanted to see Jesus. And what did he do? He went and climbed up a sycamore tree for the Savior he wanted to see. And I'm sitting there, I'm thinking to myself with that there is, Jesus was walking by. Jesus noticed Zacchaeus. He saw him. And he engaged with him. Paul comes into this community and he comes straight to their religious house of worship there and he begins to reason with them. He begins to dialogue with them out of the scriptures. He begins to share with them, be the witness that he is called to be. That idea of a dialogue. I don't think when we witness it ought to be this one-sided conversation. We often call it a gospel presentation, and I'm not into a gospel presentation, but I am into a gospel conversation. I want to talk to people. Quite frankly, I want to get to know people. I want to be able to sit down and get to know them. Why? Because I want more connection. I want something deeper than simply, hey, let me present to you five ways to get your life right with the Lord. Okay? I mean, it's on what we do. You know, number one, admit you're a sinner. You know, you start going through all this stuff, and I'm just thinking, man, have a conversation. Jesus here would often go and sit down with sinners and, and have a meal. Could you imagine if we all did that? Start going out and having a, a meal with people here in the community? Sitting down and talking over a cup of coffee? Jesus did. That was his practice. It was his routine. You know, we can't wait for people to come talk with us. We need to start the conversation. There is this moral vacuum in our world today, and people are looking for answers. And you and I, we have them right here in this book. We have the answer. Jesus Christ. And we can get out there, we can share the gospel. So be of a good courage. Start the conversation. And the third lesson I see here that we can take uh, from Paul and Silas at Thessalonica, center the conversation on Jesus. Look with me there. Uh, verse 2 again, and Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned, he dialogued, had a conversation with them, out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, which I preach unto you, is Christ. You know, the human heart is the main challenge for the world. No matter how many laws are written, no matter how many boundaries are set, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. You know, we don't have any possibility of solving our problems today without addressing the heart. So many people are trying to fix the symptoms rather than the problem. Well, we just need to establish this law. We just need to win this court case and then things will be better. But I believe the result will only be greater frustration. 
What we need is a change of heart. What we need, or who we need, is Jesus. Paul comes to them and he opens. He lays out the gospel of Christ and he opens it wide. This idea of making making everything clearly visible. Taking that Old Testament Torah, rolling it out, having it and showing him, look here, let me show you this. And opening that out and showing how Jesus Christ must need suffer. Why? Because there's sin. Sin entered into this world. It's broken. We know it. We see it in the sickness. We see it in the crime. We see it in so many different ways within our world. We just know that it's broken. And much like Jesus when he was on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples as they were walking along and they didn't know it was Jesus, the Bible says in Luke 24 that he expounded. The same idea here, he expounded the scriptures. He laid it out concerning the things about himself. For you and for me, it requires us to study, to know Jesus, to be in prayer, to be learning about him. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Again, this is what the Apostle Paul was doing. He was centering the conversation on Jesus. Here, let me show you. Christ must needs have suffered their sin. Then he was alleging, the Bible says, the idea of demonstrating, to provide this evidence for. You know, we look at the evidence that we have. We can look at scripture. We can look at this book and present evidence. We can point to our transformed life, this righteous life that we can live through Jesus Christ that acts as salt and light in this world. We can take tools like apologetics and using logic and reason to give an answer of that hope that is within us, being ready for that. God loves to be able for people to come and reason together. He said that in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, come let us reason together, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And so you see all of this here and Paul's presenting a logical argument that Christ must needs have suffered. Why? Our sin that he's risen again from the dead, that he has secured salvation. And then he goes on to say that this Jesus, whom I preached unto you, is Christ, our Savior. He was the Messiah. And so people today, though, are experiencing the emptiness of sin. I mean, I sit there and I think to myself, boy, if I had so uh, as much money as some of these people, these celebrities have, I would not have all the problems that they have. I mean, I I would be okay. You know, give me the money, I'll take care of it. You know, I'll hold on to it and use it. You know, that's what I think. But you know what? It's interesting. Money doesn't make people happy, does it? It's interesting. You can have the, the fanciest car. I still, to this day, firmly believe that a Corvette is a preacher's car. And one of these days, wherever uh, Pastor Thompson is, I'm going to come and get his Corvette, you know, and take it. Uh, but I believe it's a preacher's car. But it's not going to look good rolling up and asking somebody to come to campus church in a Corvette, I don't think. Okay, but anyways, you know, here's the reality. None of that gives us true satisfaction. We can have all those things, can't we? The next new iPhone. The next new whatever. The next pay raise, promotion, Whatever. But whatever my soul soul longs for, 
Only Jesus satisfies. And this moral decline, this decay we see around us demonstrate man running from Jesus, foolishly searching for something that would satisfy. And that's what you find in Romans chapter 1. And honestly, man should stop running from Jesus and start running to Jesus because in Jesus he would find everything that his soul longs for. He would find satisfaction. He would find everlasting joy. He would find peace. And you know what? For those of us here tonight that have trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have found that. We know that. Have you ever had an answered prayer? You pray, Lord, I need help with this. And God answers your prayer. Have you ever had those times when you've gone through a health situation and you've prayed for healing and God gave it to you? Has God ever supplied your need financially? Have you ever experienced that peace of God that even though you were going through the hardship, uh, much like Job, that you sat there and said, I have the peace of God. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And yet today, so many in our world are like what Hosea spoke about with Ephraim. He said, Ephraim feedeth on wind and followeth after the east wind. He daily increaseth lies and desolation. The picture here is quite graphic. Ephraim is going to feed on that which will not nourish, will not satisfy it's a reference to their idolatry. We've got to break that in our own lives, and we've got to understand that the only thing that's ever going to satisfy is Jesus. And we need to center the conversation as we're talking with others on Jesus. Let's look at lesson number four here. So be of good courage, start the conversation, center the conversation on Jesus, and then look at this, what our witness will do. Our witness multiplies our reach. Look with me there at verse number four. And some of them believed. And consorted the idea of joining. They cast their lot in with Paul and Silas. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. And of the chief women, not a few. Boy, we're seeing that lives were being transformed. And it wasn't just a small pocket. It's saying, hey, there was a good number of folks coming and believing in Jesus Christ. Lives were being transformed and changed. Later we read, if you drop down... In verse 10, it says, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Notice the custom, notice the routine, the pattern. They're repeating it again. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They were more open-minded. They were willing to learn, to understand. And in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. Boy, they were eager and enthusiastic. If you've ever gone witnessing and shared the gospel, you've met some of these people. Ready to receive the word. And they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed. Also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, again, not a few. Man, our witness multiplies our reach. You know, the gospel persuades both the closed and the open-minded, the non-seekers and the seeking, the rebellious and the simple. The gospel reaches everybody, and we just don't know what it's going to do in the life of somebody. We need to get out there, and we need to share the gospel. But the apostle Paul knew he could not reach people by himself. He couldn't reach everyone by himself. It was going to take all of the body of Christ, every one of us, 
together to reach the world, to shake it up, if you will. You know, here in Acts 17 and looking at verse 6, you find this, and when they found, um, looking for Paul and Silas, and uh, when they found them not, they drew Jason, certain brethren, unto the rulers of the city, crying, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Now, understand, this is a label given by the world to Paul and Silas and the rest of the Christians there. That they turned the world upside down. The idea there is that they, they shook it. It was violent. They disrupted. They did something here and, boy, they're being confronted with their lostness. They're being confronted with their sin and their need for a Savior. You know, I think to myself here that it can't just be one member but it's got to be the whole body of Christ working together can shake up the world. Later on, Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he says this about them. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. He says a little bit later, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord and have received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Ghost so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia for, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord not only in Macedonia and Achaia but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Boy, here it is, this group of people, those that received Christ as their Savior here at Thessalonica, boy, they were going out and they were sharing the gospel with others. They were doing so with joy. With joy, with a smile. I want you to think for just a moment and imagine with me when we are in heaven, when we are finally at rest, no weight of the curse, no sickness, no death, no more health issues, no more medicine, no more handicap parking, no, nothing like that. None of that's in heaven. And we're at rest with our Savior forever to be. When we are there, when we have arrived there, I'll tell you this, that every one of us will, would have wished to get everybody we could to be there with us. It's going to be that great. This is our mission, to be witnesses. So let's look at the, the last one. Be of good courage, start the conversation, center the conversation on Jesus, and our witness multiplies our reach, and then opposition follows success. This is the part that really, you know, if everything was good up until this point, we'd have to do this part or face this part. I, there'd probably be more out there witnessing, if you will. But we find here, but the Jews which believe not were moved with envy. They didn't like all the attention being turned. They didn't like losing their followers. And took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, a bunch of troublemakers, and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. In verse 7, And when Jason hath received, um, whom Jason had received, he had received Paul and Silas, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, one Jesus, they got the message right, Okay, so they did get it. There is a king, his name is Jesus, and he is that one. 
And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason, idea of, uh, of a fee, some sort of a bail or bond money, if you will, of the other, they let him go. You know, Satan's always working against us. And we must witness out of love for people who have never heard a clear gospel conversation. We need to be out there. We can't allow Satan's work against us to stop our witness. We must witness being compelled by the love of Christ for us. We must witness, for men without Jesus Christ are lost and doomed unless they are saved. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We're out there. And here's the question. Can I, Josh, can I just be a good person? Can I just be a good person and not shake the world? Not, not go turn upside down. Can I just be a good person? I mean, I'll come to church. I'll come to Wednesday night. I'll come and even listen to you preach and take notes. Okay, I'll do that. Is that not enough? And I'm reminded of another saint that has gone before us, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he said this during the time of Hitler's regime. He said, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Spurgeon said, no neutralities can exist in religion. We are either ranked under the banner of Prince Emmanuel to serve and fight his battles, or we are vassals of the evil prince, Satan. To whom belongest thou? Tozer said this, our fathers had to choose sides. They, they could not be neutral. For them, it must be life or death, heaven or hell. And if they chose to come out on God's side, they could expect open war with God's enemies. The fight would be real and deadly and would last as long as life continued here below. How different today. The fact remains the same, but the interpretation has changed completely. People think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. We are not here to fight. We are here to frolic. We are not in a foreign land. We are at home. Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So what does your role in the body of Christ look like? It might look like connect, coming out and canvassing. It might look like our Sunday outreach, door-to-door, getting out there and connecting with our community by going door-to-door. It might be talking to the people at the coffee shop instead of being on your phone, looking up and engaging in the conversation with somebody else there, making that your routine. Maybe it's going and talking to your neighbor. Maybe it's going and cleaning up a neighborhood. I don't know. Find a way to get out there and be a witness There's five lessons I've seen here tonight. Be of good courage. Start the conversation. Center the conversation on Jesus. Our witness multiplies our reach. And yes, we'll face opposition. But God's going to be with us. So, there I was on the bench. Awaiting the next time my coach would ask me. Are you going to go out? Are you ready? And thankfully it wasn't too long after that first time. And I was able to get out there and play ball. And man, I loved it. The question remains, 
for you and for me? Will we shake the world for Christ or will the world shake us?